a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on KSL Plus. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They poison the law. One of the biggest debates in the country right now. Women who are unable to travel hundreds of miles to gain access to legal abortion will be required to continue with their pregnancies and give birth with profound effects on their bodies, their health, and the course of their lives. An issue that has turned political. Prohibitions on abortion are a creature of the late 19th century. So when you think about what the landscape would have looked like at the time of the Constitution or even at the time of the Civil War, it wouldn't have been abortion is prohibited. The Supreme Court is looking at the constitutionality of a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks. I'm Matt Rascone, and this week we dive into what's happening and what various rulings could mean for us as Americans and as Utahns. We're not getting into the right and wrong of the debate as much as looking at the law and history surrounding the issue. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? Before we jump in, there is some Supreme Court history that will help set the stage. When we talk about abortion, we usually only talk about Roe v. Wade, but there are a number of other cases that set the precedent for how we handle this today. So first, in Roe v. Wade, the court determined women have a constitutional right to abortion based on privacy guaranteed in the 9th and 14th Amendments. In the first trimester, the court determined the woman's right to privacy is strongest and the state cannot regulate abortions. In the second trimester, the state can regulate abortions only to protect the woman's health. And in the third trimester, the state can regulate or prohibit abortion to promote its interest in the life of the unborn, except where abortion is necessary to preserve the woman's life or health. It's hard to think of something in the modern history of the United States that will be more epic than a ruling that either overrules or severely limits Roe versus Wade. It's so central to our understanding of what the Supreme Court is and does. In another case decided that same day in 1973, Doe v. Bolton, the court ruled that a woman's right to an abortion could not be limited by the state if the abortion was for maternal health. And the court defined health as all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. In 1992, there was another defining case, Planned Parenthood of Southern Pennsylvania versus Casey. There are a lot of components to this case, but here are some of the biggest ones. First, it removed the trimester framework in Roe, 
replacing it with a pre and post viability, meaning the state could not ban abortions before viability or when a fetus may survive outside of a womb. And the court determined that a constitutional right to liberty protected abortion instead of a constitutional right to privacy. In 2015, the court also ruled in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt that states must weigh the benefits of a regulation versus the burden they impose. So basically, the state can't say you can get an abortion, but then make it nearly impossible to do so by heaping regulations on clinics and individuals. So here we are today, and here is Professor Leslie Francis. I'm distinguished Alfred C. Emery Professor of Law and distinguished professor of philosophy here at the University of Utah, where I also head our Center for Law and Biomedical Sciences. We spoke to her about what's happening right now in the courts. Can you help us understand a little bit what is going on right now in terms of at the Supreme Court, in terms of um, the Mississippi law, and how does that relate to Roe v. Wade? Mississippi has a statute, passed a statute right now, that uh, prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, except for um, medical emergencies that are uh, given a not, it's not just necessarily an immediate emergency, but the possibility that there might be serious and irrevocable effects on the woman's bodily function without an abortion. Uh, I'm not sure how that would apply, for example, with somebody uh, who's um, diagnosed with breast cancer at 16 weeks, but I think it's possible that it could be interpreted to include that, uh, not just that you're about to hemorrhage from um, a placental detachment. Uh, the other um, exception is for fetal anomalies that are inconsistent with life. So uh, there are two exceptions. So that's the statute that's currently before the court. and. The question before the court is whether a pre-viability prohibition on abortion is unconstitutional. So again, the question right now is whether states can place bans on abortions before viability, which right now is between 23 and 24 weeks. Many argue, including our own Senator Mike Lee, that this is an issue that should be left up to states. A human in form and in substance. So the fact that this baby has yet to take her first breath doesn't deny her humanity. What are some of the arguments? Bad things happen when we deny the humanity. Because I know like Mike Lee has argued. Our history books are littered you know, this is with disastrous, tragic consequences that stem a state's rights issue to call a human being not a something less than human. You know, medical or constitutional, you know, is saying states' rights. What are some of the arguments for or against that? You know, what are what are the people who support or are against that? What are they saying about that idea? So let's let's take a couple of different ideas here. One idea would be that if there is a constitutional right, we don't just throw it to the states. 
I mean, there's a constitutional right uh, to equal protection that was recognized in Brown versus Board of Education. And on Mike Lee's analysis, if we should be throwing everything to the state, then we should be throwing racism to the state, too. The issue is whether the people, through their elected representatives, should be able to decide how to protect human life and the life of mothers in the manner they deem fit. Now, there's a, another version which might have been what was behind Justice Kavanaugh's questioning, which is that we've got two really important rights here. We've got the constitutional rights of the woman, and we've got the rights of the fetus. And at one point in the oral argument, Justice Kavanaugh said, hey, we've got these two rights. They clash. They can't be both fulfilled together. So in that kind of a case, it should be for the states. I don't think Senator Lee was saying that. Because on that, I mean, if it really, if that really is Justice Kavanaugh's view, I don't think it would follow from that that it's just for the states. There might be, for example, if if what's going on is balancing both rights simply ignoring one of them wouldn't meet that idea. Uh, so that's a second view. And then, of course, you could hold that the woman has a right that's overriding up until a particular point in pregnancy, whether that's viability or whether that's much earlier on. Viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. Um, uh, but if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? It was pretty clear to me that from the oral argument that the chief justice, Justice Roberts, was at least trying to fish to see whether there are some compromise positions. At least um, there are three justices, um, Roberts, and then possibly also either Kavanaugh or Barrett, uh -huh. who might have an interest in some level of compromise. Right. But who knows? Here's more of our producer Shelby Hensey's conversation with a professor. I guess, what are some of the discussions in your profession around the ethics of when do you decide um, if this is, you know, life-threatening to the mother or going to cause a serious impairment and and could those be impacted by the fact that all of a sudden there may be extra legal scrutiny on top of that um, and you know what are some of those hypotheticals well, that you're working through well so um, I mean I think a cancer diagnosis where I mean some women want to try to carry a pregnancy with a cancer diagnosis they might um, delay chemo. They might have surgery, but delay chemotherapy, for example. Others don't because, for example, if you have a, a cancer that is hormone sensitive, pregnancy is going to increase the risk of uh, metastatic disease. So uh, I think that kind of example. An another kind of example that uh, has been to some extent talked about. Uh, is mental 
health issues and, for example, a, a connection between a pregnancy and severe depression. Uh, a woman who's had um, a couple of children and had postpartum depression at the level of suicidality uh, might not want, would that be probably not um, under some of those exceptions? But I think many people would have ethical concerns about not exempting uh, that kind of situation. I think the other uh, the other issues that are really going to come to the fore ethically are going to be issues about access to healthcare and access to sex education. So in a world in which uh, there isn't adequate sex education, a prohibition of abortion that um, only has exemptions for the woman's health or you know really serious health conditions uh, isn't going to exempt a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old who is by law the victim of rape. Now, in Utah, the statute does have an exception for rape, but in other states it doesn't. I mean, the, the Mississippi 15-week ban doesn't have a rape exception, for example. So that that would be uh, questions about access to contraception, questions about coerced sex, and then uh, questions about access to um, the ability to pay for contraception. So it's not just do you, uh, you know, do you know about it? Uh, abstinence-only sex education doesn't teach you about contraception. It, it's also about do you have access to health care to actually get it? And do you have um, resources to help you take care of the child? So I think there will be much more in the way of ethical discussions about um, providing adequate health care for families with children and about um, if we're going to be looking at undue burdens about Family Medical Leave Act. So, I mean, I think the kinds of ethics questions that are going to be raised are, are not just the ones about what kind of condition of the mother might qualify, but um, Justice Barrett's line of questioning she she asked she came back to this twice well is it really an undue burden to carry a pregnancy if you can just give it up for adoption you know now when i heard that i thought woman of privilege I, you know you had the wherewithal to pay for five children and adopt a sixth and you had a kind of family in which you could do that but it's not easy to give up a, ch a child for adoption. I mean, she didn't really have to even think about that choice, but the thought that you would have carried a pregnancy for nine months and then 
feel that your only option because there are no good social services and you won't be able to have an education. You might have to drop out of high school. All of those concerns, uh, I, I think people people are going to start thinking about that burden and just being able to give the baby up isn't an answer to that. How does the decision in this case, how could that affect Roe v. Wade and well, give so the precedent? What you already have is a lot more balancing between the woman's right and the fetus or the state's interest in protecting the fetus with the state's interest in protecting the fetus becoming compelling at viability. Now, there are a couple of things that could happen. And I don't have tea leaves any more than anybody else does on this. But one thing that could happen is simply that the court could say, the line is no longer viability. So states can prohibit earlier on, but maybe there's still some vestige of an undue burden test so that they couldn't prohibit earlier on in a way that places an undue burden on the woman. Like um, a, a, an abortion regulation like, let's say, Texas's, which the heartbeat bills, many women just don't even know they're pregnant. And so you could make the argument that a really early prohibition would have a different kind of burden than a 15-week prohibition, for example. So that's one thing that could happen. You could get a jettisoning of the viability line without getting jettisoning of the idea that the woman has a constitutional right. The other thing that could happen, which would be the complete end of Roe and Casey, would be saying that there's no constitutional right in the first place that the woman has, in which case states would be free to regulate. Now, what happens next? So Utah is one of 21 states with so-called trigger law on the books. This law would require the most dramatic form of, of overruling, which would essentially be that Roe was fundamentally wrong, that there is no constitutional right to uh, secure an abortion uh, at any point during uh, during the pregnancy. So it would have to be a pretty dramatic decision from the Supreme Court to, to trigger this law. If there were changes made to federal abortion law, Utah would ban all abortions except in the cases of life-threatening risk to the woman or a serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. The fetus has a defect, uniformly diagnosable and uniformly lethal, or a severe brain abnormality that is uniformly diagnosable, or rape or incest that has been reported to police. Professor Francis told us a few things could happen here. If the court's decision is a complete overruling of Roe, or Casey, the whole framework, so there's no woman's constitutional right, then the so-called trigger statutes, you know, when Roe is overruled, 
we're going to prohibit all abortions or we're going to prohibit abortions except in this kind of case or that kind of case. Uh, One of the sad things about the Mississippi statute actually is that it doesn't contain an exception for rape or incest. And I, I mean, particularly with an incest victim where there's a, the victim might be very young, where there might be a kind of shroud of secrecy or guilt or threatened punitive, um, a victim like that might not ever make it to medical care by 15 weeks. So what we might find is if the court's opinion is we're going to end the viability line, states are going to have to figure out what short of viability is a permissible regulation. So a trigger statute, because Roe would not have been completely overruled, probably, depending on how it's drafted and whether it it's more specific about the form in which Roe is overruled, a trigger statute probably wouldn't go into effect if it's a limited over a limited change in row. If it's a complete overruling, what I think you'll see is in the many states like Utah, we'll have, that have trigger statutes, we'll have prohibitions on abortion as soon as the court decision is handed down. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you think is important or you wish people yeah. understood better? Yeah, I I don't know what a post-Roe world would look like, but but one thing I think it would look like is a world that's more unequal. Because there are going to be many states in which abortion is permitted. And those states are not going to limit the procedure to their um, residents. And of course, countries across the globe permit abortion. So anyone who can fly to California or to France will be able to get an abortion. People who can't do that won't. And if as the Texas statute seems to be doing, uh, the the one that's at issue in the six-week heartbeat bill privately enforced, that seems to prohibit even uh, telling somebody about the possibility they could get an abortion out of state or helping them get an abortion out of state. So paying for the plane fare for people who can't afford it. So, I mean, I think we'll end up seeing a lot more inequality and a lot more women in poverty, single women in poverty, if Roe is overruled. Uh, And um, once again, deepening certain kinds of chasms in American life that are, people need to think about whether they are problematic. 
something else that's lurking out there in the wings is much more uh, effective insistence on child support, enforcement of child support requirements, which are often not so stringently enforced. And that's not going to, you know, I, there's, they're going to be, they're going to be a lot of, you know, what would a post-row world look like ethically? There are going to be some surprises for people. This case could be decided anytime between now and July next year, when the court typically has its recess. They have the option to reschedule it to next year's docket, but most experts seem to agree they will make a decision sooner rather than later. That does it for us this week here on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone, and we'll see you again next week.